Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors. I'm your guest host, Colonel Craig Price, an instructor at the Marine Corps War College. Today we are discussing Allied strategy during World War II, particularly in the run-up to Operation Overlord and its supporting campaigns. My guest today is Dr. Mark Stoller, Professor Emeritus at the University of Vermont. Dr. Stoller's areas of expertise are U.S. diplomatic and military history and World War II. Included among his many publications are Allies and Adversaries, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Grand Alliance, and U.S. Strategy in World War II, The Politics of the Second Front, American Military Planning and Diplomacy in Coalition Warfare, George C. Marshall, Soldier Statesman of the American Century, and Allies in War, Britain and America Against the Axis Powers, 1940-45. to In addition to teaching at the University of Vermont, Dr. Stoller has served as a visiting professor at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. Naval War College, the University of Haifa in Israel, the U.S. Military History Institute, Williams College, and Washington and Lee University. He has also produced two audio DVD courses for the teaching company and served as editors, editor of Volume 6 and 7 of the papers of George Catlett Marshall. Dr. Stoller, thank you for coming on the show. It is a pleasure to be here. Well, I can tell you it's a, it's a great honor to have you here. Uh, we've been trying for a few years to have you come down and speak to our students, and uh, you just finished that interaction today, and I can tell you that uh, it, was, it was a sheer pleasure to be in the classroom, and I'm very grateful. The pleasure was mine as well. It's a wonderful class. I doubt my introduction did you justice. Are there any other things that you want our audience to know about you or your work, particularly any upcoming projects you might have? Well, I just published with Hackett, publishing a new co-edited volume of World War II documents called The United States in World War II, A Documentary History. And I may be, it's, it's not, there's no contract signed. I may be writing for Hackett a new volume on myths of World War II. And long-term, I'm working as co-author of a history of the Anglo-American Combined Chiefs of Staff during World War II. So provided I live long enough, we'll get these these done. <laughs> well, I think uh, to go off script a second, I think that would be a fascinating volume, The Myths, because one of the things uh, at McWar that we try to uh, clear from our students' minds are the national myths that relate to Overlord or relate to World War II in general. And, uh, you know, Michael Howard once wrote that part of the military historian's historical job was to reinforce uh, national myths. Uh, that's fading from the popular or the current uh, ideas, but it has a strong pull, especially for military officers. It does tend to uh, reflect those national myths. And so I think anything that can be done to to disabuse people of the notion that everything was foreordained and, and of course, America and Britain were wonderful friends. And, and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, little problem there. Um, uh, no, there, there are... Uh, this is a series, in Hackett, uh, seven myths about, seven myths about A, seven myths about B, and mine will be seven myths about World War II, uh, and there are many more than seven. I'm just going to use seven categories of myths, and myths usually have a kernel of truth, but then uh, it, it, it goes haywire, and I think one of the problems is the confusion of history with memory and co commemoration. They're not the same. Um, 
and uh, you get you get the myths when you go into commemoration. Uh, uh, and one of the jobs of the historian uh, is to disabuse people studying history of those myths. Uh, uh, classic ones for World War II, um, we won the war virtually single-handed, totally ignoring the enormous Russian war effort, the British war effort, the Chinese war effort, and the list just goes on and on and, and on. Um, uh, myths about Pearl Harbor abound uh, to try to explain this e e event. Um, myths about the atomic bomb abound. So, um, but let's see, that will be the next project. I, I did read uh, in preparation for the classes this year, I uh, used one of your books or that you had edited on uh, the uh, major problems in World War II history. Yes. Uh, I found that volume extremely useful in preparing uh, discussions on the Battle of the Atlantic for the students. And, and that's another area, I think, along with, uh, you know, despite everyone knows about the strategic bombing campaign, I think Americans tend to not realize how enormous it was, the human effort required. And, and that's one of the things that we bring out to the students is that the 8th Air Force actually had more combat casualties than the entire United States Marine Corps. And uh, students... I believe, it was, yeah, I believe it's the highest casualty rate for any branch of U.S. service during the war. And, and students are often shocked when that, when that fact gets thrown out to them. And it really does open their mind to be more receptive to the ideas that we, we bring folks like yourself in to, uh, to discuss with them. All right. Uh, going back to, as I said, I'm, I'm filling in for Jim Lacey, uh, and he prepared some questions. So we'll go through those, and uh, we'll see where this conversation takes us. Well, the first question we have today is, uh, was there an alternate and better path for vic to victory? For instance, if the Allies closed down the Mediterranean after Operation Torch, could they have successfully invaded Northern Europe in 1943? Well, first of all, uh, you have to remember that Hitler decided to invade and hold Tunisia after Torch was launched. Torch was originally not going to take a long period of time, but Hitler sent troops into uh, Tunisia, which was a French protectorate at, at the time, that stopped Eisenhower. Uh, then Rommel, after his defeat at El Alamein, retreated and went into Tunisia uh, and that campaign didn't end until May of 1943. Instead of a couple of weeks, it was six months. Uh, if you cannot close down that theater until May of 1943, and by the way, the Joint Chiefs had predicted that this would happen, U.S. Joint Chiefs. Roosevelt and Churchill said, oh, we'll mop this up and then we'll shift and we'll cross the channel in '43." Uh, and uh, this is exactly what happened was what the Joint Chiefs were fearing. Now, had you been able to end Torch in late 1942 as originally hoped, then you might have been able to successfully invade Northern Europe in 1943. German defenses along the coast were much weaker in 1943 than they would be in 1944. But, big but, you would not have had air support. Air dominance was not achieved 
until 1944. Uh, so you would have been battling uh, the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, uh, as well as the German Army. And victory over the U-boats in the Battle of the Atlantic was not achieved until May of 1943. So those are some pretty strong arguments uh, for waiting, but there are strong arguments on the other side. Uh, you, are, you, you might have been able to end the war a year earlier. Um, what all of this is, and we love to do it, these are what historians call counterfactuals. What if one fact changes, and since in history all events are linked to all other events in a seamless web. If you change one thing, it changes everything else. And it's a, it's a game that historians like to play, so do science fiction writers. I think it creates some of the best of the science fiction works. Uh, we will never know. We will never know what would have happened. You also had green American troops. Um, the Mediterranean, you got combat-hardened troops as well as green troops going into Normandy. Well, that brings up a great question. It's off the sheet, uh, so I'm going to use my, uh, my privileges to go off the sheet here. Uh, that was one of the major arguments, I think, in the, on the uniform side of the equation between the, the, the British and the Americans. I think it was Lord Allenbrook uh, who said that you don't know what it's like to fight the Wehrmacht. Uh, you have to get some experience. You're green. Uh, and this provides that opportunity for you to get that experience that you need, which there is definitely truth in that statement. Mm -hmm. uh, but yet when the Allies went into Normandy, Bradley made the decision to land the 1st Division. He requested the 1st Division, but he also had the 29th on Omaha. When he did have the 45th, which had a lot of combat experience from North Africa, Sicily, available to him as well. In fact, they landed three or four days after uh, D-Day. Why would you, why do you think they decided to put green troops in on what they already anticipated would likely be the most stoutly defended beach? Yeah, I have often asked myself that question, uh, why they did that. Um, and I really, I don't know enough operational history uh, to be able to answer clearly. If you look at a map, you see Omaha is the pivotal beach. If you succeed there, you will succeed everywhere. Uh, if you fail there, you're going to fail ev everywhere. I just yeah. cannot answer that I, one. I, I don't think anyone can, so I, I, maybe we maybe Maybe Bradley. If you look in Bradley's memoirs, he yeah. might say, say something, um, but uh, I do not know. Well, it's, it's, to me, looking at it, the 29th, they may have been new to combat, but they, had, they were a National Guard division that was activated in 1940. Uh, and so they had been together training for almost four full years. Uh, so they were very well prepared for their mission. It's just that argument that we need to have the combat experience for this very difficult assault kind of falls apart when it comes down to actually putting units in the boats and figuring out how you're going to get ashore. And there, is, there is also the argument that I've heard that you don't want all uh, units that have been in combat they might be risk-averse given what they had experienced as opposed to green troops. I know later on that was one of the, the discussion points about some of the performance of some of the uh, UK divisions that were exhausted from their experience in North Africa that wound up bearing the brunt of a lot of the fighting around Khan. 
And I know that was a, a critique of them, whether it holds water or not, I, I couldn't say, but I've, I have read that. Switching gears back to uh, the strategic again, Roosevelt discarded the advice of his military commanders and ordered them to undertake operations that they were dead set against. So in this several part question, why did he do it? Was he right? And what does that tell us about uh, the nation's civil military relations? That's a big question. Okay. And I'd like to begin. There was an old myth that Roosevelt was a weak commander in chief, that he left all the decisions to the Joint Chiefs and his generals and his admirals, uh, and that he didn't provide any political guidance. William Emerson, the former director of the Eisenhower Library, attacked that in 1959, as did Kent Roberts Greenfield, the chief historian of the Army in the early 1960s. And they said, no, there's, there's much more here. There are many other historians, including yours truly, who think that Roosevelt is one of the most active and successful commanders-in-chief in U.S. history. Greenfield, in fact, has a list of, I believe it's 22 times, that Roosevelt either overruled his advisors or the, the initiative came uh, from him. Uh, there is a long history of Roosevelt overruling what the military wanted. Why did he do this? Uh, he did this because he believed it was a key component of his job. That is what commander-in-chief meant to him. And also the belief that as the commander-in-chief, he and only he knew and could mesh all the political as well as the military variables and come up with a proper match of strategy to policy. And Torch, the invasion of French North Africa, is an absolute classic in this re regard. He forced the Joint Chiefs to accept Torch. They did not want to. Um, why? Roosevelt needed a successful 1942 offensive in the European theater to keep the Ru Russians in the war for Stalin, to show that we were not going to just sit back and let the Russians and Germans bleed each other to death, and for the public. The public was desirous of a Japan first strategy, revenge for Pearl Harbor. The official strategy was Europe first, and that had to be maintained. Um, and Marshall at one point uh, said, and he knew it would be misinterpreted, he said, in a democracy, you must have a successful offensive every year. People need to be entertained. And then he backed off and said, I don't mean it in that way. But it is true. If you want the public to back what you're doing, you have to have something to show them. So Roosevelt would have preferred to try to cross the channel in 42. But the British said no, and it was going to be British troops. Next best thing, North Africa. In fact, North Africa is better because instead of coming up against the Wehrmacht, you're dealing with Vichy French troops, which were believed to be easier. But when Roosevelt overruled the chiefs, it was usually because he had meshed the political and military factors in his own mind and came up 
with what was best. Now, by political factors, I mean very broad political factors, like I just mentioned. He did not insist that Torch be launched before the congressional elections in 1942. Once he did, you know, he held his hands in prayer for Marshall and said, please make it happen before the election. And Marshall said, Mr. President, I can't. And Marshall said, Roosevelt never raised it again. Uh, because that would be partisan politics. We're dealing here with broad matters of policy. Roosevelt also jealously guarded his prerogatives in this re regard. Marshall related the story of trying to convince Roosevelt to appoint a chief of staff for the Joint Chiefs, person today would be called the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And according to Marshall, Roosevelt's reaction was, but that's my job. And it, it began, Roosevelt said, you're my chief of staff. And Marshall said, no, I'm your army chief of staff. You need a chief over all the branches of service. And that's when Roosevelt said, that's my job. He finally agreed to appoint Admiral William D. Leahy as chief of staff to the commander-in-chief, a position that became chair of the Joint Chiefs. But he defined Leahy's role as being, in his words, my leg man to the Joint Chiefs, whereas what Marshall and the chiefs wanted was a representative from the chiefs to the president. And there is a big difference between the two. And in my reading of the Joint Chiefs minutes, Leahy fulfilled his role. Uh, whenever the Joint Chiefs started talking about political matters, he would say, this is not our concern, save that it affects the operations we are talking about. Well, I think uh, if I could follow up on that, that's a very interesting point that you bring up. And it, it seems to me it might be a topic for your myths book, because there is, and you mentioned this in class this morning, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to come up with this on my own, but there's, there's a myth that persists that in World War II, the politicians gave the military a simple, clear mission and then got out of their way and let them conduct that operation. And what you're, what you're saying here is, is that's not the case at all. No, that is not the case at all. And it works both ways. Roosevelt is fusing strategy and policy, but the chiefs, when they are coming up with strategic proposals, are aware. Marshall put it very nicely, again, in one of his oral history in interviews after the war, this myth, he said, that we didn't consider political factors at all because it's not in the, uh, we didn't bring it up with the British when we met with them, but we discussed them all the time because you could not separate the political factors from the military factors and trying to figure out, you know, what, how large a force could you send to do something. There were a host of political factors, but they weren't going to talk about those political factors with the British or sometimes with the president, sometimes not with the president, simply saying, sir, have you can considered this. It's a, it's a fascinating area, and I think it, 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 uh, it's a real eye-opener when you talk about Admiral Leahy. He's a, he's a figure that I personally didn't know a lot about uh, until this past week. Uh, we had uh, Mr. Jonathan Jordan here earlier, uh, as well as, as Dr. Rob Satino, and both mentioned the role of Leahy 
Yes. Uh, but not to the extent that you've discussed him today. Uh, can you give us a little background on what prepared him to take on that role really as sort of the first chairman of the Joint Chiefs? Or Well, he had been a chief of naval operations. One, he had a personal relationship with Roosevelt dating back to World War I, um, which I think is why Roosevelt appointed him. Marshall pressed for an admiral because what had happened in order to achieve symmetry between the British organization of the chiefs of staff and the American organization in order to form the Anglo-American combined chiefs of staff during the war, the British had a separate air force, totally separate arm of service. The United States did not at this point. The air force was within the army. It was the army air forces. And technically, there, there was no, there would be no American air representation on the chiefs if you played by the rules. Marshall made General Hap Arnold, uh, who headed the Army Air Forces, a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. At the same time that that happened, uh, originally there was balance because you had Admiral King, who was the commander-in-chief of the fleet, and Admiral Stark, who was the chief of naval op uh, operations. But Admiral Stark gives up that position or is removed from that position and sent to England to act as head of U.S. naval forces in England and coordinate things with the British. And King assumes the title of chief of staff as well as commander-in-chief of the fleet. There's a funny story that um, if you make an acronym out of commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet, you get C-I-N-C-U-S, sink us. And uh, King said, no, that will never do. <laughs> Roosevelt also did not like anybody holding a commander-in-chief title except himself. But what has occurred by 1942 in the early days is King represents the Navy and Marshall and Arnold represent the Army and that's not going to work well. So Marshall presses for an admiral to be appointed um, to balance out the Joint Chiefs and allow for smoother functioning of the organization. So I guess on a practical standpoint, when the combined chiefs would, would meet, whether it was at a major conference or they would discuss matters, did Leahy function as sort of an American version of Allenbrook or... No, not of Allenbrook, um, because Allenbrook is only chief of staff of the Army. Of the Army, okay. Yeah, um, though he also becomes, you no, know, you are correct, he, be, he becomes the spokesperson for the chiefs. So yes, Churchill also has a personal rep representative on the British chiefs of staff. Right. Lord Ismay. That's right, yep. Okay, so his peer is actually Ismay. Yes. His when they meet. That's yes, right. okay. when they meet, his peer is Ismay, it depends what they are discussing. When they are discussing European strategy, it is Allen Brooke and Marshall. When they are discussing naval affairs, it will be King and at first Admiral Pound until his death, uh, and then Admiral Cunningham uh, takes over. If it's air matters, it's um, Sir Charles Portal and Arnold. 
But but Leahy is the, you know, in terms of rank order of things, he is the head of the Joint Chiefs. Along those lines, much has been said and written this, you know, much has been said this week in class and also written overall about Allen Brooks' thoughts on Marshall as a strategist. What were Marshall's thoughts on Allen Brook? Good question, which uh, is not answerable completely because Marshall avoided making personal comments on individuals. He never wrote his memoirs. Right. And that was one of the reasons he didn't. There had been at the end of World War I this, this battle of the memoirs and generals and admirals putting each other down, and he didn't like it, and he did not want to be a part of it. I think safer is the American view, uh, all of Marshall's planners, uh, and the Joint Chiefs view of Allen Brook, in a word, arrogant. And Allen Brook was very, very bright, and he knew it. Uh, and, and he had that, that method of talking, you know, you know, this is obviously the only way to do it. And you don't know what you're talking about if you disagree with, with me. He kept the really nasty comments in his diary every day. And it was not limited to Marshall by any stretch of the imagination. You should see what he wrote about Churchill um, and how Allen Brooks survived working with Churchill is a whole other matter. That was a, a, um, a major problem, but there were times when the arguments became so intense in the Combined Chiefs of Staff meetings that they had to go off the record. They cleared the room of all personnel except the eight chiefs. And uh, Alan Brook wrote in his diary, Marshall and I had the father and mother of a row. Uh, when when the room became cleared. In fact, there's a funny story told that at the end of one of these off-the-record sessions, with everyone standing out, outside, the head of combined operations in Britain, relative of the, queen, of the king, Admiral Lewis Mountbatten, as head of combined operations, had been working with an experimental uh, ice um, shatterproof ice um, called pikecrete. Uh, um, and they, there was even talk of using it to make aircraft carriers. They would obviously be temporary, but um, and he wanted to show how that the pikecrete was, um, was shatterproof. So he brings a, a large block of it in on a gurney, takes the cover off, and stupidly fires a pistol into it. The bullet, and he did it multi, the bullet starts ricocheting all over the room. Uh, it, 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 I believe it went through Admiral King's pants leg. Everyone was ducking, and at the end of the experiment, and there were multiple shots, uh, and uh, I believe, and Mountbatten covers the pie creep because it's secret, uh, wheels it out on the gurney, and one of the MPs says, I knew it. Sooner or later, these guys were going to start shooting each other. <laughs> so they, But the point is, both inter-service and inter-allied, 
they all knew they had to learn to get along if they were going to win the war. And they did. And I think that's, that's the big lesson through all of this is eventually, you know, and, and Jordan made, Mr. Jordan made this point very clear, you know, and you did again today with, with Marshall uh, telling the president, I'll go where assigned, you must do what's best for the nation, uh, and taking what would have been a great personal uh, award or challenge to become the commander of Overlord and, and, and putting uh, the needs of the nation in front of his personal desires. Yes, yep. And uh, uh, Secretary of War Henry Stimson on VE Day uh, called Marshall into a room with a very small select group of officers and read a statement about Marshall that ended with, I have seen many soldiers in my day. Stimson had been Secretary of War under President Taft and then Secretary of State under Hoover. I have seen a great many soldiers in my day, but you, sir, are the finest soldier I have ever known. And uh, Mrs. Marshall did write a memoir, and her only comment was, that night George came home and he was strangely silent. And, and Stimson commented, it's not easy to give up a great command if you are a soldier, but you never thought of yourself. And the, the burden that you carried in this war was ex extraordinary. And there are all sorts of things Marshall would do to keep his head clear, including going back to quarters one and taking a nap in the afternoon. Well, I think it's another point uh, that was brought out. We had a, uh, a seminar on the Neptune planning and uh, Dr. Chris Young led that, and and he discussed um, Admiral Ramsey's, you know, reading Admiral Ram Ramsey's journal, and just about every day, midday, he would take lunch, uh, relax, take a nap, go play golf, do something to break uh, his train of thought, so he could go back for the late afternoon and evening yeah. sessions fresh. And that was, he said, that was more days than not that he yes. would take a break like that. Yeah, and that Marshall did it too, uh, and. Uh, uh, he, and he said to his wife, you know, I got to keep my mind clear, free of emotion, uh, free of extraneous thoughts. And he was well aware. He once said um, he had to watch his facial expression because he knew if he frowned and the press saw it, that message was going to go out and it was going to affect public opinion, the morale. I, I, I found working with his papers is an extraordinary experience in that regard. But we're going a bit far afield there. We are. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, let's bring it back. And uh, it's 1943, and President Stoller is at Casablanca. Do you support your chiefs and push to go to Northern Europe, or do you go with Churchill to attack Europe's soft underbelly? There is a, an incredible meeting that takes place between Roosevelt and the chiefs on January 7th before they go to Casablanca. And Roosevelt asks... Marshall, are you chiefs and your planners united in calling for a second front in 1943? And Marshall is forced to say no, that some of the planners are saying this can't be done. Uh, there is not unanimity amongst the planners. And Roosevelt says, know that the British will have a plan and they will stick to it. And basically, from the American Joint Chiefs' point of view, the chiefs were humiliated at the Casablanca Conference. Marshall's chief planner wrote home, one might say, we came, we saw, and we were conquered. 
the, the, the British organization, the backup papers, everything. And the Americans were simply overwhelmed. And Roosevelt, seeing which way the wind was blowing on, on this, went along. In a, he was not going to force it one way or the other. And I think he wanted to stay in the Mediterranean in 43. 44 was another matter entirely. But as a result of their failure at Casablanca, the chiefs revamped their entire planning structure. And they began to war game the next conference as to who would say what and when. And they set special effort to win the president over to their point of view, which succeeded in 1940 after the Casablanca conference. By the time you get to the Trident conference in Washington in May. By the way, we'll throw in one thing about the, uh, the Trident conference. Marshall, knowing how important it was for the chiefs to get along, arranged for a weekend for the British chiefs and the American chiefs at Williamsburg. Uh, and, and examining the battlefields in that area. Uh, and, and he knew that um, Allen Brook was a bird watcher. Each of the chiefs, by the way, had some hobby, some way. And for Allen Brook, it was bird watching and uh, made sure that Allen Brook had enough time to, uh, to do that. Hmm. I think that's an important lesson for, for our listeners and for our students. Uh, the, the opportunity to interact at that level uh, is, is pretty fleeting. And to go into it without being prepared, without having a plan, uh, is akin to going into a battle without having a plan. If you don't know where you're going to be headed, how can you possibly provide best advice yeah. to your civilian leaders? Exactly. And, and uh, you know, it worked out, but we have to divorce ourselves of the notion that it was always going to work out anyway. Exactly, exactly. There is this tendency when you look back at history to say, well, it had to work this, this way. It didn't. It didn't. It could have worked other ways. And I think these individuals deserve enormous credit for what they were able to do. It, I wanted to add, going back to Allenbrook, who had a very negative view of Marshall as a strategist, because he didn't see Marshall thinking ahead. The truth is, the marshal I've studied always thought ahead and had an extraordinary ability to think, if you will, around the corner and to look at what was really important uh, and what were going to be the long-term consequences of actions. The classic one is when he uh, established the Civil Affairs Division to deal with conquered enemy territory in 1943 and appointed a general to head it. And according to that general in his oral history, the charge that Marshall gave uh, the general was uh, to never forget that we are servants of the republic as officers. And it is very easy to forget that in, when you're doing your job. And the job you're taking on is really, Marshall f felt it was really a civilian job that has been forced upon the army. And he wanted the military, uh, uh, the general was appointing these military governors to be very careful. He said, we have one great advantage. Our people trust us. They do not think we are going to try to overthrow the government. And you can destroy that trust overnight because of the area you are dealing in. Can you imagine this is March of 1943? And there is the way Marshall is thinking in terms of long-term cons consequences 
of actions. And he would do the same when talking about overlord versus the Mediterranean strategy and what were the long-term consequences of each approach. So I think Allenbrook got Marshall totally wrong because Marshall had not thought in terms of invading in 42 beyond establishing the beachhead. But I, I think it was a mistaken notion and they were able to get over this. And in fact, the British official military history points out that by 1945, Marshall had emerged on the combined chiefs as the first amongst equals. And that could not happen unless Brooke had developed re respect for him. You also have to be very careful. Alan Brooke's diary, he vented every night. He had to deal with Churchill constantly. And, 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 and so there's, there's this venting that goes on. And that's the advice I gave the students. If they keep a diary, keep it private. Don't let it get published after the war because exactly. you never know what <laughs> you never know. generations of historians and, and readers will think. Right. Well, Dr. Stoller, I want to thank you for being on the show. I know our students enjoyed their time with you, and I certainly did. And we look forward to having you back at McWar as soon as possible in the future. I'm your host, Craig Price. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically minded, innovative podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Rivero. Have a great day.